We're standing at the corner of Wall Street and Main Street. Over the last decade, companies were staying private longer, and we saw the rise of the unicorn, a privately held company worth over a billion dollars. Investors were clamoring for access to these companies before they went public with the expectation that they'd be well-received by the markets. Of course, Wall Street does not make this easy. These companies are groomed by venture capitalists, hedge funds, and private equity shops. They coordinate their IPOs with the top investment banks who gift those precious shares to their valued clients. Enter companies like Investex. Investex offers broker-dealers access to invest and trade in late-stage private companies without the traditional multi-million dollar investment minimums. I am so pleased to welcome to the show Marcus New, CEO of Investex. Marcus, welcome to the program. Hey, great to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Oh, it's our pleasure. And if we could, before we kind of get into it, could you tell us about your background and how Investex was born? Wow, that's a long story. I don't know how much time we have, but uh, I'll, I'll try to give you the shortened version of it. Um, I started in the markets in the kind of mid-90s. And uh, back then, I started a, a financial website to basically provide information to investors because back in the 90s, you know, the brokerage industry controlled investments. They had all the information. And so as a result of that, they used to charge very, very high fees. You know, back then, it was probably 35 4%. Can you imagine that to make a trade? And then, of course, the market makers would take another eighth or a sixteenth off of it. And then really is because the only information you'd have is you'd read the Wall Street Journal or your local newspaper, the LA Times, and you get a few business stories and you didn't really know how to invest. I mean, you'd see the stock tables in the newspaper. And so information sources like us, we came on and started to provide information on the public markets. And then you saw kind of discount brokers come in, the E-Trades and the Ameritrades of the world. And the combination of getting access to information with companies like ours and Yahoo Finance and others you know, combined with transactions, you know, all of a sudden we now have like, I think it's 10 times the participation rate in the markets now, you know, as information has been widely spread out. And so, so for a long time, you know, and I did this through a company called Stockhouse, which was basically up in Canada, but it was the, it was the Motley Fool of Canada. So if you're familiar with Motley Fool, it'd be very, very similar. And so as we covered the public markets, you know, kind of in 2013, we saw some of these same issues happening in the private markets where, all of a sudden, private companies were staying private longer. And when they went to an IPO, they were substantially bigger. And when we looked at that, we said, hey, there's like, there's like 10 or 12 institutional investors that are making all the money here. And they keep making it. It's the same ones every single time. And that was Fidelity and Wellington and TPG and a few others. And we said, we said there's got to be a way, just like we did back in the 90s, where we could use technology and a platform to help a broader group of people get access to this asset class because it's so terrific, right? And and like you said right in your opening, it was perfect. You know, we all want to have those IPO shares, but those basically, unless you've got an institutional account at Goldman Sachs, you know, or Morgan Stanley, you're not getting them ever, you know, and you better be a very, very large account. And so you don't get access to the IPO. You have to buy it usually at some massive premium in the market once it's listed, right? And we said, well, geez, but you've got these 10 or 12 club institutional investors investing before it goes IPO, what happens if we could help clients get access to it there at that point? And that's kind of how we, we formed the company. So in 2014, we started to make investments. We're probably grandfathers now in the industry, but started to make investments in this asset class and help lots of investors put it into portfolio and get the benefits, which have been spectacular, as you know, over the last decade. 
Sure. You know, that's it's such an interesting way to come to this point to go through media and communicating because, you know, any sound uh, strategy starts with information. And it's true going back into the 90s and thinking about having to rely on, you know, the the printed page to get information about investments and uh, and look at these stock tables. And, you know, we've come so far The the word that I think really bridges this gap is democratization. Uh, I think that democratizing information at first and then accessibility to this asset class it sounds like the journey that you've been on and from the wall street side of things and and you know the way that things were it used to be that financial advisors would give ideas and information to retail investors but in the last few years as a part of this democratization and another i guess maybe an overused word now decentralization of the power of, of investment, um, it seems that investors are coming to their advisors looking for exposure to new ideas. Things like crypto, obviously, which has been very challenging for Wall Street to get their head around, and pre-IPO investing, saying, why can't I get into this unicorn, multi-billion dollar company before they have this tremendously successful IPO? And you know, Wall Street, or at least financial advisors, were challenged in the way they could find that exposure safely through trusted partners with full transparency. And Investex has really found themselves in a key uh, proximity within that, uh, that divide. And could you tell me a little bit more? There was a big investment into Investex uh, fairly recently, about a year ago, which I think speaks to how valuable your role is perceived. Yeah, I think I think there's a couple of things there to unpack with what you said. I think which you know are bear kind of repeating. Um, one is you know the clients of the firms today, right? Of the of the broker dealer firms, um, you know, are quite can be quite can be quite educated if they want to be. You know, and, and you see this in medical uh, issues as well, right? A doctor is, spends all of his time or her time meeting with patients all day long. They don't have a lot of time to do a lot of research. But if you have some type of disease or some type of issue, you can spend all the amount of hours that you want in terms of researching online, figuring out things to help talk to the doctor about, right? And I think that that kind of collaborative relationship you see more and more investors kind of take on because truthfulness, they sometimes have more time than their the professional advisor does to actually research things that they're really interested in, whereas the advisor has to spend more of their research time on things that are that are good for their entire population of customers, right? And so, so I think more of that collaboration becomes a really important part of that advisor relationship. I would say one thing that's very different though, where we invest today in the private markets compared to what we helped to democratize in the public equity markets was the public equity markets, you know, information is widely available, right? And the private markets, there's, there's not the same level of information disclosure. And so therefore the, and the products are slightly different because you have things like preferred shares versus everyone's got the same common shares that are listed and traded, you know, and, and there's a lot of uh, nuances. And so, I actually think the advisor is the perfect example of how to have, you know, to be really successful in this market, you know, versus going direct, right? Versus coming to us direct and say, oh, I want to invest in something. You know, the, the advisor, that's why we've chosen to only work with the advisor partners, because the advisors themselves actually help to make sure, hey, is this the right product? Do you understand the risks related to a product like this, where there's not the same level of liquidity like the public markets are? Right, they may not have the same level of information that the public markets have, and so I think the investor is really serviced by the advisor being a partner here, 
enabling them to get access to this asset class because it's been so uh, lucrative from a risk perspective related to the, the percentage returns on it, right? And it's been typically an institutional product. So now it can be brought, brought to a broader group of people, but the advisor still has that key critical role of making sure that again, those, those things are understood because for most regular investors, they're actually really not well understood, right? And, and as more people invest, they'll become more well understood. You know, maybe at some point it won't mean as much, but the reality is today it's a perfect partnership. And I think every investor should, should work it through with the advisor to make sure that they can do it in a way that's well balanced with their portfolio to help them in terms of, you know, meeting their investment strategies overall. To answer your, the question, though, in terms of, you know, what we, we took an investment last year from uh, Jefferies, which obviously one of the largest investment bank M&A debt firms in the country. I think they're ranked number seven in the league tables nationally. Uh, uh, Virtu, which is one of the largest market makers in the world, and Canaccord Genuity, which is a cross-border uh, 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 wealth management institutional firm that's in the US, Canada, and the UK, uh, who invested in our business because they saw what we were doing to create better access, more transparency to what you're saying, you know, and helping to make the market more effective and efficient because today the private market is very inefficient. Now on a level, you know, to be honest, Doug, the inefficiency is what helps to create returns for clients, right? You know, so on a level, but, you know, but broader and longer term basis, as more and more people participate, we want them to be able to participate in a very transparent way that really helps them to understand the risks, manage them effectively so that when they add uh, growth equity and pre-IPOs to their portfolio, they're doing it in a way that's very balanced for them to make sure they, they, they'll be successfully, you know, obviously in the short term and the long term. Right. And that's such a great point that, um, you know, as investors have utilized all of these resources for their benefit and enhance the conversation that they can have with their advisors, ultimately, it is their advisors that should be the arbiter of the judgment calls that they're making, the amount of risk that they're taking, and help them understand exactly what they're getting themselves into. I mean, we don't have to go back too far to 1998, 99. You know, my, um, my aunt was in an investment club with a bunch of other uh, elementary school teachers and um, knew I had an interest in Wall Street. I was in business school at the time and said, can I show you my portfolio and you tell me what you think? You know, we've got an E-Trade account. We speak about this every week. And, you know, these are elementary school teachers. She said, all right, our top holding is JDS Uniphase. Right, <laughs> and right. Our, our next holding, <laughs> yeah, Sun Microsystems. And, and I'm just, my, my mind is blowing, like, um, really? Like, you know, Aunt Jane, tell me about JDS Uniphase. And, and so it is important, you know, to have access and the quote unquote democratization uh, as a part of the evolutionary process in investing, but you also still need the guidance of professionals, just as, you know, you can diagnose yourself on WebMD with any number of ailments, but you certainly wouldn't want to perform the surgery uh, at home. You probably want to bring that into a hospital. Um, so I think it does speak to you being the flywheel and, and people in your part of the industry looking to gain access to that asset class, being the flywheel, but still needing those other cogs like a Canaccord Genuity, a Jefferies, a Virtu, to put this all together into an investable solution that you can then bring to the market to solve for this opportunity. Um, but you know, with that being said, one of the, the, the shifts that we've seen in the last six months has been truly seismic when it comes to, quote unquote, growth equity, uh, both in the uh, public markets and in the private space. 
And as good as um, 2020, 2021 were for IPOs and companies with you know, high multiples, so-called growth equity, uh, 2022 until recently has been absolutely horrendous. I, I wanna read a couple of headlines here. And then I wanna sort of get your thoughts on, on the landscape right now. And then maybe talk a little bit about where you think this is all headed. So first half of 22, IPO activity has slowed to a five-year low, but that barely scratches the surface. 1,073 companies IPO'd in 21, raising $317 billion in the US, of course. And in the first half of 2022, the total was just 92 companies raising just under $9 billion. Um, you know, obviously, last year being such a big year for private equity, for IPOs, there was the SPAC market. That's probably a conversation for another day. But there was a lot of pull forward of demand. But rising interest rates, inflation, slowdown in the economy, it's really changed the playing field for both private and public companies. Could you kind of describe the landscape in the private equity space right now? Yeah, and I think, you know, um, I think there's a, there's a couple of areas to kind of unpack there, right? So, you know, and, 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 and what does a private landscape kind of mean? For investors, and so so if you let's, let's go back to the public market. So the public markets have been in decline for six months, um, and you know, subject to the end of Q2, the first half, obviously it's done a little bit better here in July. But the reality is, is they've come down. Now the private markets, because the private markets are really a longer term investment, and and there's no mark to market where the value of the company is being marked every day by buy, buyers and sellers creating supply and demand against it. You know, they really only get marked when they go to raise capital. Right. So if you're raising capital, though, in this period of time, you're going to mark your investment down. Right. So that's just the reality of it. And there's no exception to that except for SpaceX. SpaceX actually went up 25 percent. But let's call that a, a, a different kind of world class breed of company. Right. It doesn't exist in the general marketplace. And so if you don't need to raise money, though, then what we can think about the company is the valuation of the company is down on a theoretical basis. Right. You know, and on a pure accounting basis, you'd probably mark it down because I'll give you an example. If you're buying a SaaS business at the height of the market last year, you know, in the public markets, it was around 16 to 18. And right today, it's about six to nine times sales. Okay, so that's the public markets have basically been cut in half in terms of what they were trading at last year. So arguably, if you bought a private company in the same kind of ratio, it would be arguably cut in half as well. Except that when you think about it over a period of time, let's say over a five-year period of time where you want to own that business over a three-year period of time, actually does something slightly different. The way we kind of think of it is that company basically will have a couple of lost years of growth. And so what does that mean? Well, what that means is let's say the company's growing at 40% a year and you bought it at 10 times, you know, sales, but the market's six times, right? So that company has to grow 40%. So the next year, you know, grow and grow the following year. And it may take a year and a half or two years to grow back into it being trading now at six times on the valuation you paid. Right. And so so if you think about that, what it's really doing is it's affecting IRR for the client. Right. So if the client was getting 20 percent a year annualized return, now all of a sudden, if they got two dead years in a five year term, right, it's going to drop that down 40 percent in effect. Right. So they'll drop it down to, let's say, 12 percent. So they're going to generate 12 percent IRR instead of 20 percent IRR. So so the, the private markets, you know, don't adjust the way the public markets do but they do adjust when companies need to raise capital, right? You know, so that's, that's kind of one step of it, right? There's, a, there's an automatic adjustment then because people are looking at the public market differently and the valuations and they'll make an adjustment there. 
But I think if, as an investor, when they look at it, you know, what's happening in the public markets doesn't really matter as much as what matters if you're a public market investor, right? Because again, if you're thinking about, I want to own that company for three years and it's private, which is kind of the nature of owning the company is you want to own it for a longer period of time. The ups and downs of it, when it gets ahead of itself and when it gets below itself are kind of irrelevant. What matters is at the end point, how the performance of that company is three years from now and what the market looks like three years from now. And so the market's down, will definitely affect the internal rate of return for investments. So investments will be down. But here's what's really interesting. So if you're fully invested in privates today, right, and you're expecting 20%, you're going to get 12% on that theoretical basis on the on the math that we just did. But if you think about investing today, though, right, um, and I'll give you an example. When COVID hit, this just comes with experience, right? And, I, and I've been through four bear markets now, I think, <laughs> you know, and some of them have been pretty tragic. Um, but what you do know with through experience is that when when you have this kind of this massive dislocation, right, which COVID created in March of 2020, uh, where prices were down phenomenally, fear all over the place, very few people had courage to go make investments. But what we knew was there were some world-class companies that if we put up a bid in a private market where there's no transparency, you can't find bids and offers, it's very, it's very difficult to even transact it. If we could put up a bid on a very good quality company, there's, pro there's distressed sellers all over will get hit on that bid at, a, at an incredible value, right? And so, so we put together a fund with that thesis, right? And of course, very few people wanted to participate because there's so much fear in the market. But, but we did end up raising a fund. We ended up investing in some amazing quality companies and we and pretty much have all exited. Um, but that fund in basically two years returned 3.7X with buying multi, multi-billion dollar companies because of that factor. So, so the one thing I would say about investing is today, when you think about the market, we're investing in this kind of trough in the market, in this, in this very significant bear market overall, right? And so, and this is the kind of vintages that usually are the top vintages when you look at vintages. Well, you can imagine if you invested all your money last year in 21, compared to if you're investing all your money in 2022, you're probably going to make a lot more money investing in 22 than 21, right? And so, so I think that, you know, the summary of that is, you know, you have to have courage, right? And this is why we're now launching a fund four, which I think you might be familiar with or maybe not, but we're launching our, our fourth fund, you know, to help take kind of advantage of this kind of market right now, which I think will be really, really attractive for investors. Sure. And, and obviously the old adage uh, Warren Buffett um, coined was to be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And that sounds uh, to me that like it's even more pronounced in the private markets than you know, in, in the public markets with immediate liquidity and, and the ability to react, uh, you know, spontaneously and instantaneously. So uh, that being said, you know, now that we've seen this sort of abrupt halting of one growth cycle in the space, and we are in this um, divide between, you know, where we were and now this, this certainly bear market, I think we could say for growth equity, how do you see this market recovering? And then does the IPO window open again? Obviously, we see that as a pendulum. What's it going to take for those markets to loosen up and become a little bit more friendly to you know, high multiple uh, companies and, and so-called growth equity in the future? Yeah, well, there's a couple of factors there for sure, right? And so um, when people are making a lot of money, you know, they pay less attention to valuation. You see valuations kind of creep up. Right. And so and, and those are really you know, consistent with, with the tops of all these bull markets. Right. So when you think about high quality companies, though, 
Um, you know, I think you gave some stats, you know, a little bit earlier, like, you know, first half of the year. I mean, the IPO values raised were like, nine, it was down nine zero, ninety percent 90%. Like, you know, it's a massive amount, right? But what is interesting is trade sales up, or sorry, m and uh, you know, M&A or trade sales are up significantly, right? And so, so when we think about, you know, investing, it's really around the time period of when your, your funds exit and when you want to be able to capture, you know, the capital back and the returns back for clients. What's, what's important, if, if IPOs are down and m and up, it doesn't really matter, right? Because we're, we're investing in private markets. But the reality is to get IPOs up, right? And this might take another year from today. It might be the middle of 23, right? It might be the end of 23. You have to have a lot more confidence in the market is really the core thing, right? And so one of the things that drive confidence in the market are all the economic things you hear about in the newspaper all the time, you know, but when people are making money, they drive valuations up. Right. And then this, you saw this inflation and all these assets as a result of this. People were making money all over the place. Cryptocurrencies up, real estate's up, you know, pretty much every asset class on the planet was up. Right. Because people are looking at places to make more money. And so the opposite happens, you know, when people are losing money, they all go down, you know, in general. You know, they used to have some things that are uncorrelated. It seems like nothing's uncorrelated anymore. You actually lost money in bonds now, <laughs> in addition, you know, which you've never been heard of. How do you lose money in equities and in bonds? Right. So, but I think, uh, you know, we, we think it's still going to be a while away. It doesn't really matter so much for us where we invest, um, you know, because the M&A market is super active. And the great thing that is prevalent is there's a massive amount of cash sitting on the sidelines with private equity firms that are buying companies, you know, from institutional investors that are buying companies. Corporate balance sheets are massive as well, right? Um, but valuations will come down because debt now is more expensive. Right. And most of those companies, like, you know, especially the PE firms, they have to use a lot of leverage to make their returns. Right. And so there's a cost for leverage today that's higher than it was, you know, three months ago and six months ago. And so valuations will come down. But, but I don't see a big change in liquidity from private equity firms. They still have to put that money to work. Right. And they're sitting on trillions and trillions of dollars of cash. Right. And so they have to go to work, you know. And so I, I think the MA market will be much more active. The IPO market, which is much more sediment driven, you know, will be a while. Right. And, and, and to your point, I mean, in this vintage, you know, fortune favors the bold, obviously. Uh, uh, we can't really say for sure what the outcome of investments today will be, but we can say that we're getting a different price today than we would have yesterday. And, and, uh, and it should reflect the additional risk and the more challenging circumstances around the space. You know, in, in, our, in the series of podcasts that we've done here, Wall in Maine, there's been a theme that's come back over and over again. I almost think we should get a mascot or like a character to incorporate into the show around a Sherpa. I find that a Sherpa is a great uh, symbol of what you have to do to get ideas from Wall Street into the hands of investors on Main Street. And, you know, I think it has to do with the fact that when you're dealing in financial advice, you're taking someone who's not an expert on something and you're guiding them so that they can have the outcome that an expert would have. Um, so when you want to invest in real estate as an alternative investment, for example, you invest alongside an institutional partner, a sponsor who has experience. When we want to invest in private equity, we try to find a partner or a Sherpa to take us up the mountain so that you know we don't wind up making the mistakes that an amateur would make along the way. So, Along the way, so I'm going to kind of leverage your your relationship uh, with um, you know your 
that critical role that you play as a bridge between retail investors and you know the the very treacherous waters uh, or or mountain to scale in private equity. And I'm going to ask, what kinds of companies do you look for? You kind of have a shopping list on behalf of retail and individual investors that would like to participate in your offerings. What are we looking for? What kind of investments are you looking for to deliver this market to us, but with maybe the risk reward with the attributes that we're comfortable with as we invest in alternative investments typically? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, um, you know, what we should do is define the area where, where we're experts and in, in institutional investors in, which is what we call growth equity or late stage venture, or maybe you might, uh, uh, client might call it re, uh, pre-IPO. And, and really what that means, that, that, that stage of it is we invest in companies that are not early stage companies, that are not kind of mid-stage companies trying to figure out their business model. What we're doing is we're investing in companies that actually have most of that business model figured out, but what they want to do now is add more capital to grow it faster, right? And so, you know, if you thought about it from a venture perspective, this would typically be series kind of D, E, F, like higher, you know, not A, B, C or seed rounds or anything like that. Like the venture guys take a lot of risk to get lots of zeros, but their, their goal is to find something that's 30X, right? We don't have anything like that. There's no 30Xs here, but there's no zeros, right? So, you know, the idea for us is basically to capture the last two or three years of the growth of that company before it has a liquidity event and be able to manage that piece. So, so from a kind of the, the Sherpa's perspective, you know, when I when we talk about this, right, that's kind of the, the lens that we're looking through, right, which is those kind of companies. So, so from that perspective, um, we used to look at companies, you know, where, our kind of core criteria was they had to be at least a billion dollars in valuation. You know, our average is probably closer to about $4 billion is what the company's worth. They had to grow at 30 to 40% a year. So we had a high growth rate. You know, they had to have a, a, um, a period to liquidity where we expected they would have a liquidity event within, you know, three years. And the reason why that was important to us is because the longer that company stays private, you take more execution risk and you also take some more growth rate risk. Right. And so I'll give you an example. If the company is doing half a billion dollars in revenue or let's say let's use an easier example, a billion dollars in revenue it's growing 30 percent a year. So it'd be one point three billion. But the, as that company gets bigger, it's hard to keep up those growth rates. Right. Because the actual pure dollar amount, it just becomes significantly higher. Right. And so so the shorter period of time that you own the investment, you just take less growth rate risk. Right. You also take less liquidity risk because of the fact that you own it for a short period of time. So so going back to kind of how what we look for is we used to look for multi-billion dollar companies that were private that, you know, were growing at this 30, 40 percent plus a year. You know, that we had some evidence that we would expect a liquidity event within three years. And then and then what you have to do is so that became our base criteria. Right. So if it's under that, it was too risky. You know, if it didn't have those kind of criteria, it's too risky for us. And so, so then what we looked at was we used to look at growth rate, you know, and it, you know, basically plus gross margin, right? But we've changed that in this market. So when you go into a recessionary market, one of the things we look really for it today is efficiency rate, right? So what is it? What is the free cash flow plus the growth rate, right? So if I have free cash flow twelve percent and I'm growing at thirty percent, I have a forty-two percent efficiency rate. And so these are the things that are actually really, really interesting. You know, because in, in a lower valuation environment, which is what we'd be in today in the public markets, right, those things have a lot more kind of growth to them and also create better risk-related returns, right? Especially if you're talking about free cash flow, businesses that are in free cash flow. One of the, I think, the challenges of the last kind of five years in the growth market overall and the 
kind of the end of the bull market was people were just paying for growth and didn't care about profitability to the same level. Right. And so today that's really, really important to us. Right. You know, we have to have companies and it always has been important to us. Right. But it used to be before that we'd have this kind of period of time. We say if that company was we expect them to get the profitability within two years and they got a really high growth rate, then that would be an acceptable uh, time period for getting to profitability. Today, actually, we, we've actually moved that back. Right. Where they have to be profitable this year or they have to already be profitable. Right. And have a growth rate. Now, what that does, that narrows the amount of companies to look at. And so it makes it a lot harder to invest. Right to find some of these criteria, but I think overall, what it does it ensures that we continue our track record of creating really outsized returns for our customers. You know, as we kind of adjust this market, we just got to work a lot harder to make sure we can find those kind of companies. But, but those are some of the things that we look at. The other thing we look at too is, you know, we, we want companies that have really strong operating leverage. Right, these are not companies that are employee filled. You know, that they have when when as they grow revenues, they create a lot more cash flow, they create a lot more profitability. Right. And so those companies that have more almost like a fixed cost structure, right. And then additional dollars. So SaaS businesses are like this, platform businesses, marketplaces are like this, right. Where the, the infrastructure has a lot of scalability to it. Um, we also usually invest in use, the usually are number one or number two in the world because they have a lower cost of customer acquisition. They get a lot more brand effects around that. So they get a lot more attributes to their business. They also get a, a valuation premium when they exit typically of at least 10%, you know, sometimes 20% over a comparable company. So, so these are kind of the, I'll just give them some flavors for it, but these are the kind of companies that we look for. And in our team, we've got a, a, a good sized team that we go through and look at a lot of businesses. And, and then what we look to do is partner with the best entrepreneurs and management teams by investing in them, giving them access to more capital to grow their business faster with the outcomes that we look for, for our investors overall, you know, at the end of the periods of times of our funds, which is obviously a really positive return for them. Man, Marcus, I, I'm going to tell you, like, I, I'm going to go back and read the transcript of that, uh, that answer. <laughs> that, that was incredible. That, for our listeners, that was such a valuable look under the hood of how a group like yours, and there are many like you, not necessarily delivering the end product that you deliver, but canvassing the opportunities in the private markets, either through investment banks or through strategic investments, through venture capital. And it's very cloudy once you get across the street to the retail investor of understanding what to look for and how to value private companies, you know, which ones we should be keeping our eye on either to invest potentially um, as they're private or when they go public to know, you know, put earmark a couple of dollars for this company because they're going places. And, and I really appreciate that comprehensive overview of how you analyze these opportunities and this is a real-time conversation, how maybe the metrics or, or your guidelines have shifted a little bit as the markets have changed ever so subtly. I think you know, it's tempting to look at private equity as sort of in a lockbox, right, or behind the glass and say, it is what it is until it has to emerge and, and, and become a part of the public markets. But that's not the case. You know, these companies still need access to capital. Um, you know, they still want to test their value. They want to, as the, the term we say here, Zillow themselves from time mm -hmm. to time to figure out what they're worth. And so those markets are moving every day, just like the public markets. It's just happening behind the scenes. And, you know, the goal of Wall and Maine is to demystify these, uh, these more abstract concepts, these complex markets, transaction strategies, opportunities to make it. Uh, digestible to the retail investor or the casual listener. And, and I think 
you know, we've done just that here. And, and I really appreciate uh, you being so generous with your time and your knowledge to, to share some of the, you know, the more complicated aspects of this and, and help us break it down into something that's a lot easier to understand. Um, there's one last thing that I'll say, because I always want to make sure that our listeners understand what we're talking about here. Uh, obviously, wealth management, particularly in the United States, I think as an industry is about as efficient and, and in my maybe biased opinion, about as good as it gets. The, the fact that we've got trillions of dollars invested in, in hyper-efficient investment structures geared towards retirement, geared towards uh, favorable outcomes for investors, and, and navigated you know, by trusted financial advisors and incredibly uh, trustworthy financial institutions, we've got a good thing going here. And alternative investments can give you the ability to you know, customize or, or maybe um, shape your strategy towards your goals, your interests, or areas of the market that you find compelling versus you know, the, the overall more standardized uh, market that, that you typically participate in with the bulk of your investments. And all that is to say that alternative investments still play a key role, albeit a relatively small one in the overall strategy. But I love the idea that we're getting more and more options as the years go by. So how should investors look at pre-IPO, let's call it, or private equity as a part of their overall investing strategy? And would you classify it as an alternative investment? Yeah, so I think it's a good question. I mean, from an individual's portfolio perspective, the advisor is going to know best in terms of the person, whether they need income, growth, overall returns, diversification, all those issues. So I won't, I don't want to comment on that. What I would say is that, you know, what we've really recognized what the industry's seen is if you think about CalPERS with California pension, if you think about, you know, the endowments, the Yale endowment, the Harvard endowment, all of these long-term investors have significant exposures, 30, 40, 50% alternatives, right? Because what they recognize is the bond markets and the public equity markets don't provide enough overall return for them in their overall portfolio. And, and what they're doing is they're really taking their portfolio and putting some, say, putting it into some different stages, right? So, you know, can I have some um, in five-year terms, some in 10-year terms, some in daily terms, like the public markets would be or, or bonds might be. And so there's been an attraction to it because the return profile, you know, there's some return profiles you can only get in the private markets and in the pre-IPO markets. For example, you could only get the highest growth technology companies in the private markets. They do not exist in the public markets the way they do in the private markets. And of course, that helps them to go public and eventually be in the public. But as those public companies continue to get larger and larger, you know, you're seeing growth rates in the high teens and the early 20s for the best of them, right? You'll never see 40, 50, 60% growth rates of large technology companies in the public markets, right? And so, so this is where you can actually get technology growth companies that don't exist in the public markets, which is one piece. And so, but there's also, I think what the most attractive thing to me as an investor was, and when we first came into the market almost a decade ago, investing here, was that the market's so inefficient. And when you have inefficient markets, what happens, you can make returns. I'll give you an example. I used to joke that the public markets can't beat the Goldman Sachs computers, right? I mean, they're faster than you. They analyze more data than you. They do all these things faster than you'll ever do in your lifetime, right? And so long-term investing, you know, great. 
But you know, in terms of, of more active investing, it's it's harder. You, you know, the, against computers. The private markets today, if you think about them, though, information is scarce. If you have it, it's competitive advantage. You know, pricing, no one knows what it is. You know, valuations are really hard to come by, and so trading in these securities are really difficult and require a lot of deep expertise. You know, and so you know, but because it's so hard, if you're very skilled, like what we've tried to do at Investex is build incredible skill here. Right. If you're very skilled, you have a track record, you can create outsized returns without taking on, you know, a significant level of difference of risk. Right. And so, again, going back to we invest in multi-billion dollar companies, they're just private. Right. And that market is super inefficient. And so we do a number of things. I'll give you just one example, Doug, just kind of to finish off, just to give an example of a strategy we do. It's kind of a little bit, you know, behind the, you know, the Wizard of Oz thing here a little bit. But um so in, in a, if you want to own a 50, uh, kind of $50 million or $100 million position in, in SpaceX, for example, you know, Fidelity wants to buy $100 million from their fund, they'll have to go through when the company raises money, right? But throughout the year, there might be a lot of smaller investors, employees or early seed investors that want to sell a million dollars or $800,000 or $3 million or $5 million with the stock only, right? Well, Fidelity doesn't have the time they probably could do it if they wanted to, but, you know, doesn't typically go out and say, oh, how do I go find 30 different small investors or 50 different small investors, put all those shares together and get my $100 million? What I do is I wait for them to raise money. I put my $100 million in, I get the shares, right? And so, but one of the things we do, part of our strategy on how we help investors get better returns, because the market's so inefficient, if you want to sell a million dollars, there's very little institutional demand for that stock. And as a result, it trades at a discount. But it's kind of like you put little odd lots of bonds together and all of a sudden it's worth more. It's the same thing here. All of a sudden you put a bunch of those small little pieces together that you bought at bigger, big discounts. And all of a sudden by that block, it's all, all, all of a sudden it's worth more, right? And so, so these are some of the things that you can just do in the private markets that you just can't do in the public markets or in other markets, right? And so because of those inefficiencies, we help clients make money in them, you know, in addition. And I'll just give you one example. We have like three or four proprietary things that we do kind of like that. But those are the ways that we help clients make money, but you gotta be really skilled and deep expert. And that's why I think, you know, most investors should have access to a small portion of their portfolio in this asset class, right? Because they'll be the future public companies or or probably a part of a future public companies that get bought for a trade sale. Right, awesome. And I appreciate you sharing with us uh, some of the tricks of the trade, but it, it really is uh, the, the democratization of an asset class that for so long has been, you know, held closely by a privileged few and only given to the masses once, you know, great, a great amount of the prosperity has already been realized. So we appreciate uh, companies like Investex decentralizing the power structure on Wall Street, democratizing asset classes that hold so much promise, but yet remain elusive uh, to the masses. And, uh, and, you know, we really appreciate you coming on to the Wall of Main podcast and, and shedding some light on this mysterious industry. Uh, Marcus New, CEO of Investex, thanks so much for coming on and joining us today. Yeah, it was great to be with you today, Doug.